Welcome to Roll Calling, a podcast about actors we love and the movies we love them in. I'm Caroline Sita, and heart don't fail me now, courage don't desert me. And I'm Ned Baker, and who's to say I'm not a princess or a duchess or whatever she is, right? I think you would make a great princess or a duchess, Ned. Oh, thank you. I would love that for you. The way this podcast works is that Princess Ned and I take turns curating a five-film <laughs> miniseries starring an actor we love. We are currently in our Meg Ryan retrospective series, and so far we've covered 1989's One Harry Met Sally, 1990's Joe vs. the Volcano, and 1993's Sleepless in Seattle. And this week we are doing a very exciting roll-calling first and we're looking at a voice performance, Meg Ryan's yeah. voice performance as the title character in the 1997 animated film, Anastasia. As as one character says, Grandmama, it's me, Anastasia. <laughs> a frequently quoted line in the Sita household growing up. And Ned, I feel like you and I just regularly reference this film as like almost a cornerstone of our friendship. Would you agree that this is something we do? I think we found out early and enthusiastically that we were both big fans of this film. And I remember my main association, Caroline, is that prior to this actually getting a Broadway stage adaptation, this was sort of your answer to the prompt of what animated film would you like to helm the screen to stage adaptation of? Mine was Nightmare Before Christmas and yours was Anastasia. I think this was even further. It was just more like, what would your dream career ambition be? <laughs> uh-huh, and yours would be to bring Anastasia to the stage. And crushingly, yeah. it didn't happen for me. Yeah. But that's okay. I've never seen the stage musical. It's too It's too emotionally fraught for me to even think about visiting. Understood. I won't, I won't bring it up Thank again. Thank you so much. Yeah, real, real hardship for me. But yes, I feel like Anastasia is a frequent bonding point. And one of our mm-hmm. reasons we were really excited to do this Meg Ryan series is because we knew we could... This could be a way to bring Anastasia to the podcast. Yeah, Um, here we are. I do want to acknowledge up front that we are recording this in early March. It is honestly like a very weird time to just be discussing a movie all about Russia. But we had this episode planned for a long time and it sort of equally felt weird to move it. So I think what we are going to do is just be looking at this movie very much as it was intended, which is just this very lighthearted animated adventure romance that is very much in the sort of Disney princess vein of the 1990s. Um, And to help us do that, Ned, I am absolutely thrilled by the guests we have on this week's episode. So Like a full-on celebrity in my mind, to be honest. Uh, (laughs) Someone who literally has a PhD in animation, the author of DreamWorks Animation, Intertextuality and Aesthetics in Shrek and Beyond, fabulous title, and totally. <laughs> co-host the absolutely wonderful podcast, Disneyversity, Dr. Sam Summers. Welcome to the show, Sam. Hello, guys. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you for the positively fawning introduction. That was fabulous. <laughs> it's it's uh, None of it is pretense. We are big fans of, of Disneyversity yeah. and uh, super excited to have you all on. I was going to oh, say the fawning guys. will continue because I really just need <laughs> to say how much I love Disneyversity. Like, I, if you are listening to this podcast, please also listen, honestly just stop this podcast and go listen to their <laughs> podcast because it's so good that you guys go through um, the entire Disney animated studios canon, one film at a time, starting from Snow White all up until eventually getting to the modern day stuff. And yeah, if you are a person that likes animation or Disney, it's just like such a 
joyful, informative, fun listen. And and I am just thrilled yeah. to now bring you onto our podcast to talk yeah. more animation. It's really exciting that you all have the structure kind of set out this chronological journey. And you are approaching the era in which I think myself, Caroline, and a lot of our listeners like really got into the the whole Disney. I mean, I what was the last episode I listened to was The Great Mouse Detective or Basil of Baker Street or Basil the Great Mouse Detective. Was there there's there's been maybe one or two since that time? Yeah, we've done Oliver and Company just oh, now yeah. came out as we're recording this this week. And that is a fantastic, amazing, bizarre, uh, mm-hmm. strange, very, very 1980s film. And then we're going to take a little bit of a break because it feels like we've reached the end of an era, kind of the end of a season for us. Mm-hmm. Um, what we've been calling the Dark Age, but that's mm-hmm. that undersells how good some of these films are, I Truly. think. Um, and then we're about to get into, of course, the Renaissance, starting with The Little Mermaid in 1989. So we're going to have a little bit of a break to get our bearings, hopefully get some exciting guests locked down for that era as well. Um, yeah, and that, of course, is the era that I'm most familiar with. It's the era that my co-host Ben is most familiar with. That's when we started watching these movies because that's when we were children. And that's right. yeah. for, for most people, these are a new high watermark in terms of quality for that studio. So that is very exciting. And of course, that is also an era that really informs the film that we're about to talk about today too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. And then this is like... I hope that this is fun for you to talk about something that's not Disney for a little bit, but then we've also kind of brought you on to talk about something that is almost Disney. I feel like a lot of people just mistake Anastasia for a Disney princess, like people like me that kind of grew up with all of these female characters at once. She kind of gets lumped in there because it does feel so much like a Disney movie. Was was Anastasia something that you, was this a movie that you knew growing up? Like, was it part of the movies you watched? Yeah, it was. It, it wasn't one that I owned on VHS, which was really the set of movies that I would just watch over mm-hmm. and over again. But I definitely remember going to see it in the cinema, and I definitely remember um, over here in the UK they did a promotion in Nestle breakfast cereal, or it might have been Kellogg's. I think it was Nestle. Well, this is how my mind works. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm very, sure. even when I was a kid, I was very into the brands and I knew what was going <laughs> on there. So, so they had a, a deal with I think Nestle cereal, whereby you got little um, sort of amulets in each box and the one that I got had a little hologram in it of one of those terrifying green bat demons from the Ooh. movie. <laughs> so that's my main memory is is getting that fishing that little spooky amulet out of my cereal box and then going to see Anastasia with my dad and enjoying it but evidently not enough to get it on mm-hmm. VHS because like I say I was very aware of the Disney brand when I was a kid like even I must have been like five years old when this came out and even then it was like this isn't a Disney movie. She isn't in the Disney store. Mm-hmm. She isn't wow. like in the trailers in front of the Lion King or whatever on the VHS, you know? So there seemed to be an awareness that this was a similar kind of thing, but not quite the same even then when I was a kid. I don't know if I would have known that just from watching the movie on its own, though, because it is quite a close, I hesitate to say imitation, but quite mm-hmm. a close match for a lot of what Disney was doing during that point in time. I don't think I would have grasped that distinction at the time between the different studios. Oh, I'm definitely I, with I, Sam on that one. I was also oh, the wow. kid that was like, um, excuse me, Anastasia's not a Disney movie. That's a 20th Century Fox movie. <laughs> you, yeah. were a, you were a well, actually, as, a, as an eight-year-old. 100%, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Especially later on, though, when I was at um, like high school and people would be like, 
Oh, oh yeah, I'm so nostalgic for those 90s Disney movies. You know, I remember those 90s Disney movies. Remember Hercules and Tarzan and Anastasia? It's like, excuse me, actually. <laughs> I think you will find it was 20th Century Fox, Don Bluth, The Lamb Before Time, All Dogs Go to Heaven. It was it was that guy, not those guys. So I was, oh, I was a really, I was fun to have at parties. There's <laughs> a straight line from these childhood and high school memories that leads us to being podcasters and professors at this point. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Now I get yeah. to say it well, actually, to rooms full of students <laughs> on a weekly basis. Yeah. Very good. <laughs> now we just have the authority to have no one challenge us or have mm-hmm. no one else be in the room. Um, I'm glad you brought up the little tie-ins because ned and i were actually texting this morning about the various anastasia merchandise that we respectively owned which in my Uh. house okay i think technically they were my sister's barbies like they were stored not where the regular barbies were they were stored in her personal barbie collection but we had Mm -hmm. i'll post this on our twitter feed but we had anastasia in her like once upon a december dress and then Anastasia in her opera, like her sleek opera look. And I think one of them what came with the little um, together in Paris, like amulet or like the little mm. medallion she wears. So mm. that was like a coveted, you know, who is going to wear that at dress up time. So we were a big, big, like full on Anastasia household like really a cornerstone and ned what was what were some of the things that you had oh i had a weird mug that looked like puka like puka's head it was like a sort of a molded plastic thing that i think i got it like a taco bell or a burger king so good we'll put that on the twitter feed too we have, we yeah, a yeah, yeah we'll share share those i think mine my mine just extended to the the weird spooky gremlin amulet mm-hmm. um i vividly remember i think if you bought the vhs in the uk you got a free bartok plush oh. with it, which is pretty oh, cool but like i said I now never had that you that. say that i feel that i must have had some sort of plush bartok mm. that's, Ned, that's opening like a memory have slight bartok energy <laughs> <laughs> i'll take that i i think that's fair maybe that should have been my intro i'm ned baker a filmmaker with slight bartok energy <laughs> that sounds like Consider. a diagnosis <laughs> yeah that's right this yeah he's He's, he's, he's got uh, Bartok energy, and there is, unfortunately, no cure. <laughs> so, Sam, you had a slight personal connection to Anastasia growing up, but is this a movie that, like, comes up in your work a lot? Is it one that you find you cover, or does it sort of fall through the cracks? It's not something I cover a lot in lectures, actually. It does fall through the cracks in that sense, and maybe it shouldn't. Maybe I should have <laughs> a, a Bluth week or something. But Don, Don Bluth as a filmmaker is very interesting to me because he's had an odd career he's had lots of you know in disney we can group their films into these broad sweeping like decades long phases mm-hmm. where you can see certain people at the helm who have certain sensibilities whereas don bluth's whole thing like the kinds of movies he makes would change every one or two movies you get something completely different which has mm-hmm. always fascinated me but a lot of what i did in my phd a lot of the work i was doing there was really charting trends in the US animation industry over the entire course of its existence, really. And my thesis was that Shrek was very important and that Shrek changed the course of what was happening. But in order to make that point, I had to look at, for example, the impact that Don Bluth had, which was substantial. He had a massive impact on the kinds of films that Disney was making, which in turn had a massive impact on what everybody else in America was making as various different hand-drawn animation studios started to pop up in the 1990s. And then what we see is, over the course of Bluth's career, is Bluth going from a provocateur, somebody who was initially from within Disney, 
because he started off working at Disney, mm-hmm. trying to bring them back to a place where they were making things more akin to what Walt would have made in the 1940s. Then he left and started trying to do that on his own with movies like American Tale and The Land Before Time. Then he starts to do loads of really weird, strange, bizarre movies like All Dogs mm-hmm. Go to Heaven and Rock-A-Doodle and The Troll in Central Park, which are really neither here nor there, just on his own trip completely. <laughs> and then you kind of see him almost like throw his hands up and be like, all right, okay, this is what people want. You don't want to watch my weird troll movies. That's not making money. Okay, I'll just make a Disney princess movie. That's fine. So you see it come full circle where he was the guy who was trying to push them into this more classical place in terms of the kind of films Disney were making. And then you see him forced to like, what's the word? Like acquiesce to what they're doing Mm -hmm. and and imitate (laughs) that because that's the only way (laughs) animated movies can seemingly make money is if they're operating in that Disney mode. Which then you also see in, I I think kind of like the last big movie he made, which was Titan A.E., which he like was again sort of like, let me revolutionize things. And the audience was like, no. And then he was like, great, I'll just stop making movies. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. It's like Anastasia was his biggest hit, at least in like um, Unadjusted for Inflation, it was his Mm -hmm. biggest hit. It made lots of money. He was given something of a blank check, I guess, at Fox. And he was like, all right, okay. Titan A, we're doing we're doing this ludicrously expensive, sort of adult-oriented sci-fi yeah. thing. Just around the same time, Disney was booting up a couple of other ludicrously expensive sci-fi movies themselves in Atlantis and Treasure Planet. All of them flopped. It was yeah. almost like that was a crossroads where um, that could have been the direction that animation mm-hmm. took in America, that everyone was going to be making these big-budget sci-fi action movies because you had those, you had... Um, the Final Fantasy Spirits Within mm-hmm. movie. Um, oh, I guess right. The Iron Giant is kind of it's sci-fi oriented in its own way. And none of them did very well at all. So that didn't end up happening. But for like three or four years, yeah. that was kind of on the cards. There was a real panic. Like, we've done girl stuff for so long. We need to do boy stuff now. <laughs> Titan A yeah. definitely feels like a boy stuff kind of movie. I mm-hmm. mean, it's filled with cool ideas. I mean, I'm sure that there's lots of interesting stuff in there in terms of sci-fi ideas that you know anybody can engage with but i don't know there's something about the whole thing that doesn't feel like it gels for me um but it is definitely like it's certainly ambitious and a lot of these ones it's it's interesting that again i don't feel that i had as a child i wasn't keeping track of the creatives and i don't know that i could have seen but once as a semi-adult you start to get a sense of what a don bluth movie is it's like if you tell me an American Tale, All Dogs Go to Heaven, Anastasia. You can start to kind of infer some of the other ones. You know, they all have... I was looking at clips from Thumbelina today, which mm, I did watch Another as a kid. big one in the Sita household. I guess we Bizarre. were... Katie and I were really like Don Bluth heads as children. <laughs> yeah, this is a, you were in yeah. a Bluth house. We like, really were. Yeah, they just all have a really interesting feeling. I don't know... I I would love to, to, to have explained like some of the hallmarks, although it sounds... Sam, like you're sort of suggesting he tries to resist having like one thing that he does. But but I feel like this sort of, you know, like almost like like gooey, gross. Like I the, there there's just little things like like when Bartok goes through this like gooey tunnel to the underworld, I was like, Oh, that's very much I recall that image from All Dogs Go to Heaven. I feel yeah. like these like sort of rich but sort of decaying uh hand-painted backgrounds feel sort of like part of his mold 
there's something about the faces that don't quite gel, but the motion is very vivid. I, I, I don't know. I feel like I'm sort of grasping at straws. Now, Caroline, you also wrote, I think, a really good article about Don Bluth a few years ago. Yeah, oh, kind I of a while ago. It was an AV Club piece that, like, honestly feels like a lifetime ago. But that was really my first time sort of, like, really sitting down with Bluth's filmography as a whole. And... Yeah, also realizing that I think I really was drawn to these movies as a kid. Like, American Tale was a big one. Um, Land Before Time, I think, is great. Again, I was less into Thumbelina than my sister was. But that and Anastasia were, like, two, you know, gen- on a lot in the household. Pebble and the Penguin, which I think Blue, like, half worked on and then quit, maybe. But that was another one that we were we were very big on. Uh, I think you're right that there is, like, if you look at Anastasia and Thumbelina, which are the most, like, pseudo Disney Mm princess-like, there is that edge of, like, weird darkness that you're talking about, Ned, like, that, like, at one point, Rasputin, the villain, who's literally, like, falling apart, his head just falls into (laughs) the inside of his stomach and (laughs) is, like, sitting there in its- Inside his ribcage. Inside its ribcage with, like, gooey stomach juices, and you're like, you would not see this in a Disney movie. (laughs) No, yeah, not that like scene me. rules. That's so, <laughs> so badass. Like maybe in the Black Cauldron, but that's about sure. that's about it. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah. yeah. He is willing to go to darker places because again he's he's very much and at least initially was focused on going back to what made those Walt Disney movies great. And one of the greatest of all the Walt Disney movies is Pinocchio. For me, it is probably the best animated movie that Walt himself worked on. And that goes to some exceptionally dark places Mm -hmm. really inspired by but almost surpassing the horror movies of the day like the german expressionist films and stuff like that and it does feel like that's something that bluth is often grasping at especially because there's like there's so many orphans in these movies he seems obsessed with orphans which is Mm. maybe seen as something of a disney stereotype but i don't think anyone went as hard on it as walt did in those early films with snow white and um, pinocchio and bambi and to an extent, Dumbo, because his mother is imprisoned for most of that film. And that's something Bluth always goes back to in, like, All Dogs Go to Heaven, Land Before Time, and American Tale. And he does set them all in these very grimy, disgusting, oppressive urban environments. So I think that mm. is a hallmark of his. Yeah, but also, like, in the films of his that are most interesting to me... One of his hallmarks is is like just a wild abandon when it comes to the structure of an animated movie and and how these movies can flow and and what what they can even be about. Because I think like his biggest movies are American Tale, Land Before Time, which he made with Steven Spielberg, and Anastasia, which was the first film that he made under this new arrangement that he had, whereby he effectively relocated his independent animated studio to 20th Century Fox. And those movies are good. But they don't interest me that much because they're so kind of tight structurally. Um, Mm -hmm. They are so conventional. And it's like, yeah, you can see why they were hits. But Rockadoodle, Rockadoodle is insane. (laughs) Yeah. Like, what is... That's the word I would have gone for. Yeah. It's like an Elvis rooster. I've I've only seen it a couple times. I don't have super strong memories. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a rooster who thinks that his crow is what makes the sun literally rise which is rooted in an old French folktale that Disney almost adapted a couple of times called Chanticleer. But Bluth is like, okay, now the rooster's Elvis, and there's an <laughs> evil 
owl who hates the sun and he's tricked the rooster into being Elvis. And then also there's a live action framing device where a little boy gets sucked yeah. into the rooster cartoon world for no Becomes reason. Cat, right? What yeah. is what is like the plot purpose of this live action thing other than to confuse? So that's a mad movie. All Dogs is a mad movie. I was going to say, All Dogs is, cre- is, is a wild movie as well. Yeah. It's, I mean, you've got like... The whole third act hinges on the appearance of this random, like, giant sexualized alligator who was never, <laughs> never, like, set up. The alligator appears, and then the alligator is crucial to the climax, and then the alligator disappears, never to be heard from again. And as well as it just being a children's movie that's basically, you know, a matter of life and death, like, about what happens after we die, and what happens to good people and bad people after they die is is covered yeah. and accounted for in that movie. Um yeah. Yeah, and like whips. literally about killing dogs. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. that's the I feel like that's the one thing that's off limits for like you know entertainment that people yeah. that sensitive people watch. And it's like, oh no, this is a movie all about dogs dying. We're just gonna yeah. give that to the children. It's like all dogs go to heaven. Oh, that's a nice idea. Wait, when? <laughs> yeah. what, what? There's a stage that we're missing here. All dogs die and then yeah. go to heaven. Like, oh, the eighties. The eighties seem like kind of a dark time, you know. So I think uh, you could get yeah, away with I anything. Think, apparently, Secret yeah, of Nim. So. That's like probably his greatest movie for me. Mm-hmm. That's his first movie. That's really dark, and it's about like mice who've been experimented on by scientists to give them superhuman intelligence. And then, like we even talked about Thumbelina, which prior to Anastasia was the movie of his, which most closely mimics the Disney princess mold, and mm-hmm. that is also just wild. Like the 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 plot of that movie is structurally so bizarre it's just she moves from like one place to another again sort of an orphaned girl not really Mm -hmm. sure where she's supposed to be in the world but she keeps encountering these very sexually lascivious male characters and it's just you know sort of like Pinocchio it's her moving from one ordeal to another but they're also focused around people wanting to marry her is, is what that movie's about it's about her rejecting a series of suitors the songs in that movie are like bafflingly bad allegedly written by Barry Manilow but yeah he comes oh, out with stuff I don't know what Barry was smoking during Thumbelina man or Barry <laughs> just lost it Barry wrote one of my favourite Disney songs of all time uh, Perfect Isn't Easy from Oliver and Company but he also wrote Marry the Mole from mm-hmm. Thumbelina one of the worst songs ever in an animated <laughs> movie so what's going on there so it just feels like the most interesting Bluth movies are when he, there's no sense of quality control when there's no Steven Spielberg or 20th Century Fox breathing down his neck forcing him to make something conventionally good and he can just go off in all sorts of wild directions and usually misfire in bizarre ways but in interesting ways i love an interesting movie Mm -hmm. it's not to say that anastasia isn't interesting but but i think i think that is the thing like with all of particularly now that you think of disney as being the company that owns marvel and star wars like for me we're at a place of like we're looking at blockbusters i see getting like safer and safer because they they find a really good playbook and just try to like play that book as tightly as they can over and over again. So I feel like we're particularly in an era where I'm always calling for like, try something really gutsy and then fall flat on your face. That I will love to see. And uh, yeah, we do we do see some of that in in this <laughs> in this filmography. I think you make a strong case that that is more his style than yeah. you know play the script as it's been played before. Well, this will be fun a fun conversation because I actually think on rewatch one of the things I really appreciated about Anastasia was like how tight 
tightly written it was. So I think that for me, what, yeah, is is in some ways conventional. Like, I think when done well can also be a mm-hmm. big asset too. But, yes. okay, Ned, I'm curious a little bit more about, like, what, what actually was your history with the movie itself outside of your puka mug? <laughs> and then equally, how did it hold up for you, like, revisiting it today? I think... Um... I think I definitely saw it in the movie theaters. I think we did have it on VHS. I, what I'm certain I had was a cassette tape of the soundtrack mm-hmm. and listening to that a lot because the songs are great. I think the music in this movie, in my opinion, is really terrific. Um, not a marry so the I, mole situation. Not a marry the mole situation. Um, so I listened to it a lot. I think it must have fallen off because I think, frankly, the fact that it, while, as we said, feels like a Disney princess movie, but isn't a Disney princess movie, is always going to prevent it from coming up in the same, you know, if someone says, like, let's do a Disney marathon, this just, like, won't be included. Or, like, let's let's tribute, you know, these Disney princesses, it won't, you know, it's kind of boxed out in that way. But I have returned to it a number of times, and I think generally always enjoyed it. And I would say my rewatch today... I was a fan. I think there was the, you know, sometime in my mid-20s, I went through the whole, like, hot take, now not really so hot a take anymore of being like, wait a minute, when you first time you realize, like, that with a throwaway line, the whole Russian revolution is characterized as being, like, a symptom of uh, an evil sorcerer's curse, saying he put the curse and from that day forward, the fans of you know, outrage in our country were flamed. And it's like, well, that was, or that, that, that was not quite, uh, not quite it. So that is, I think, still kind of a problematic historical revisionist mm-hmm. slash like, I don't know. I mean, like what, how, how much American media has subtle anti-communist propaganda in it from the 20th century. But the, like, the thing is, I think that's really the only choice you could make if you're going to make a film about reuniting like the lost czar princess with her family. And, and I don't think that much of the movie is um, engaged in that, in those sort of topics. And so, as you say, it really does kind of like divorce itself from politics in a way, which I think is the smart thing to do. And my feeling is that the writing of it particularly from like a character and story place is just so strong. I think especially from a character and chemistry thing. Like Mm -hmm. these are strong, well-developed characters all the way through it, at least in the central cast. I've Rasputin is a little bit of like a weird enigma, like tacked onto it where I think in that case, it's actually all about animation and voice performance and not really about the writing of that character or how he's involved. But, but I just think like in terms of, the like the way they develop the relationships in this it's really great and i think the premise is just like the best fucking premise of all time i couldn't when get it's over like, this too that How like good the premise is this music man con artist needs a fake princess and he, they trick her into thinking that but they she's think the that she's real the princess, princess. <laughs> but she is the real princess but nobody knows it and then he figures it out and they had this whole history i mean that's great and it all for me it's all like the 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 kicker is in that moment in learn to do it. I know we're jumping all over the place when she says, "I recall his yellow cat," and Vlad says, "I don't believe we taught her that." And they then like literally mug right to the camera as if like, "What are we doing here?" That is when 
I think it just like my heart just swells with how good a like musical rom-com fairy tale hook we have for this story. Yeah, it is the I really that was what I took away from this rewatch the most was just like how what a great setup that is that you're mm-hmm. getting someone to fake their real life and then like the moment when Dimitri realizes and then he has this whole moral crisis of like but she is the princess and now I have to leave her like that is you almost don't need any of the like you don't even need Rasputin in this you could just take him out entirely and it could just function as like an adventure romp romance which I actually think is I so I didn't realize this but this is based on loosely based on a live action film that Fox owned from 1956 that starred Ingrid Bergman and Yule Brenner, which was itself based on this like wildly successful 1950s play that started in France and then went all over. Mm. And I think what happened, as you were saying, Sam, that this was the first um, movie that 20th Century Fox had done under their animation branch. And they had kind of just said to Bluth and his um, co-director, Gary Goldman, is that his name? Yeah. They had, they had said like, just pick a movie out of the Fox canon and kind of like make an animated version of that. And so I think that they had kind of selected Anastasia and then at various points had more grounded takes and then added in a lot of the like mystical, magical and like comedy stuff on top of it. But I think you can see the bones of just like a really good romantic romp. And I think it really like helps the movie that like you say, that's also like, I don't know, well-crafted and well-written and just a really good, like you could just make that as a live action story. And I think it would be really satisfying. Totally. Yeah. And you have like, you also just have from a rom-com perspective, which has been kind of like the mini theme of our Meg Ryan series, you just have, I mean, a lot of, I feel like one of the common complaints or one of the metrics to which romantic Disney princess movies are held up to is is there actually time and reason for the characters to fall in love with each other you know i think we often cite tangled as being a movie mm-hmm. that has um a lot of like actual like, time for them to bond i also think tangled kind of owes some of its dna to this i mean this flynn rider another big takeaway <laughs> really feels like a dimitri character um but their dynamic like, oh, this is why feels. i love tangled because it I just saw it in my brain was like it's Anastasia and it like it's, imprinted yeah, there's on a, it. There's a lot of connection there. But but I think this is you really get those scenes uh that justify the romance being kind of like the ultimate thing. Like I mean the movie kind of ends with her being like I'm so glad to have been reunited with my estranged family and it it hits that emotional beat but ultimately you know at her grandma at her grandmama's prompting she sort of realizes like the life of a royal is not for me. I want to go be out on the road with Dimitri. And I think they sell that with their the chemistry that they have, which I, I don't know if they were ever in a studio together. John I, Cusack and Meg Ryan. They were, not? which is oh, rare. It's yeah. not usually how it's done. Occasionally you'll hear about, oh, this on this movie, for this reason, we got these two actors who share a lot of quote-unquote screen time together to record in the booth together but it's that's very rare they would do it individually and apparently i think it was was it meg ryan was finding it difficult to yeah, to, so. to just perform against nothing so they actually got her and and cusack in a room together and, and got them to bounce off each other and that really really shows doesn't it because absolutely that kind of banter is 
the essence of a lot of great rom-coms. It's the essence of When Harry Met Sally, for example. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I don't think we really get in any Disney movie up to this point. Between the romantic leads, I'm thinking, you know, I'm looking at Little Mermaid. Not really, because she can't talk. Not a banter <laughs> movie, no. Movie. <laughs> Not a banter movie. Beauty uh, and the Beast, kind of a little, a little bit. bit, but it's more like Beauty and the Beast. The dialogue is more in that like slightly heightened fairy tale space, mm-hmm. whereas yeah. the dialogue in Anastasia feels more like it comes from a modern romantic comedy perspective. I think maybe Aladdin is the closest. Like, I do think there's a couple little moments with with jasmine and aladdin where she's like you Mm. are the boy in the marketplace and they're like little banter but i think it's less foregrounded because a lot of that movie is like him off with the genie or just like other things happening and this is just like anastasia and dimitri are together for the vast majority of it and it is as you were saying sam less um vocally naturalistic than anastasia is anastasia feels like definitely this of these of these movies the only one that really has that like i don't know just just snappy back and forth, interrupting each other, kind of making little weird vocal tics banter going on. Mm-hmm. Well, it also is more modern, like literally in its setting. And I think yeah, that this true. was one of the reasons I was so drawn to it as a kid. Like I keep kind of talking around this, but like Anastasia was just huge for me, right? Like even today <laughs> I'm like, I, I shouldn't even be discussing. There's no way for me to be objective about this movie. Like I just imprinted on it so fundamentally as a child that <laughs> It could be the worst movie in the world, and I don't think I would be able to admit or acknowledge that. But it was just, like, fundamental for me. Like, I was a princess, super into the princess canon in general, really loved the Disney princesses. But I feel like Anastasia, like, hit me on a different level. And I think part of it is because the movie is like, here's the country we're set in, here's the years we're set in, which is rare. Like, Disney's often just like, oh, it's The Little Mermaid, you know? It's kind of this vague fairy tale world or Beauty and the Beast. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, it's France, but it doesn't feel tied to a cultural moment in the way Anastasia does. This movie is in 1926, full stop. And and like, this is what Russia's like in 1926. And this is what Paris is like in 1926. And then just the fact that it's in the 20s, which I think Disney hadn't really done until Princess and the Frog, like they hadn't been that contemporary. And I think that kind of allows them to give Anastasia and Dimitri a little more of that modern banter than you might get in something that feels more like like, this feels more rom-com than fairy tale, I would say, even though it is, like, a princess story. It feels like a modern princess story. Yeah, there's aspects of the fairy tale in there, which I think we, we maybe could talk about as well, because it is... And yeah, I always I sweepingly refer... Even in some of my writing, I sweepingly refer to this genre of animated film from the 1990s, especially as, like, the Disney-style fairy tale musical. But obviously, actually, looking at those movies that Disney were making a tiny number of them are like literally mm-hmm. what you would think of as the definition of a fairy tale, like a Western European um, folk story from the Middle Ages. That's like, like, you know, like sort of Little Mermaid, definitely Beauty and the Beast. Then that's pretty much it. We've got Greek mm-hmm. legends. We've got Chinese mythology. We've got, you know, a Parisian novel, <laughs> like a great work of high literature in the Hunchback of Notre Dame. We've got American quote-unquote history in Pocahontas like (laughs) none of these movies are literally fairy tales but they are fairy tales in the looser sense in the sense that like Pretty Woman is a fairy tale Mm -hmm. as well in the sense that it's a a slightly heightened vaguely fantastical story um, about these idealized versions of characters living 
idealized lives and magic may or may not be involved but i think you take rasputin out of this and it's still a fairy tale because that's the kind of story we're telling and you know um when they are at the is it the opera or the ballet that they oh yeah you're to? right it is ballet i well, said they opera, say ballet but... it sure looks like the the paris opera yeah, I think well, my mind well, just went Pretty Woman, the... like up in the little box watching the opera. But you're right; they're watching. Yeah. They're watching Cinderella. I think it's as Cinderella, mm-hmm. yeah. and that's what this is. This is it's a Cinderella story, not as straightforward as Cinderella. But that's what this is, and that's part of calling our attention to that. That this it might not be a capital letters fairy tale, but it is a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. they also cited My Fair Lady as an influence because you yeah. get very much the like we're taking this peasant girl and like training her to be a princess within the twist that like she actually is a princess i also when i had a quick look at don bluth's just to mention the musicals real fast when i had a quick look he also has this big theater aspect of his i mean not even career it sounds like he literally was producing musicals in his own living room for fun for the love of them but he did he did do the music man and sound of music mm. and this is a music man story it is i mean if you like through dimitri's angle it is about a con man Finding love, and then also somehow through the miracle, like delivering on what he actually promised to do, even though he set out to, you know, manipulate people for gain. So he got his foot caught in the door. That's right. To quote exactly. the music man. Yeah. That's a very so, good call. I so, also think Pocahontas is an interesting comparison because I think, similarly to Anastasia, there are movies that, like, I get the impulse. Let's take a real life historical story and, like, make it a fairy tale. And I think they both similarly run into a problem that's like, maybe these were not the historical stories we should be making fairy tales out of. Like, they're kind of like very grim <laughs> stories. And like, it, it feels weird to like put a sheen on t- onto them. I think, you know, in, in two very different ways, obviously. I think it's the sort of thing that maybe as a kid, so with Anastasia especially, like... I don't know. It wasn't, obviously it wasn't something that was like hugely bothering me how this children's movie was depicting the Russian revolution at the time. But like, I do understand the critique that it is very strange to take like a real life tragedy where all these people were murdered and then like real life kind of grim stories where people would come out and like pretend to be this, you know, Anastasia and then ultimately were proved to not be true would be like, but what if one of them was... And I don't know. It is a weird thing. I think a lot of times with stuff like this, it kind of just depends on how old it is. Do you know what I mean? Like the further you get back in history, the less I think emotionally connected we feel to it in a way. And I feel like the story is right on the borderline of like, doesn't quite feel like ancient history. Yeah. I mean, definitely if you start to analyze it, then it it does become a bit like, for example, the way in which they, um, the, the fairy tale kingdom in this is Tsarist Russia, and yeah. that is the that is the fantasy world that she wants or that she ends up kind of wanting to return to. And it's well, it wasn't really a fairy tale for the vast majority of people in yeah. Russia, nor was after the revolution, obviously. But it's like you see, you see the the working class in Saint Petersburg at the start singing their big introductory number, like damn, it was so much better under the czar. It's like, well, I don't know, maybe a few people would have said that, but it's. I think it was pretty rough either way you look at it. There was a revolution for a reason. And I know that's the that's the kind of hot take that you were talking about, Ned. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there was a revolution for a reason. Yeah. It is one of those things where, like, I think the best thing you could do to to, to enjoy the movie is just be like, I'm going to I'm gonna turn off. I'm just going to let yeah. this live in its own little self-contained box. Yeah, um, you've got to 
I think the movie is smart to really zero in on it as a story of family, too. Like, they do try, as you were saying before, Ned, they try to just Mm -hmm. be like, don't worry about the politics too much. Like, it's there around the edges. But mostly, this is a girl who, like, doesn't have a family and wants to find them again. And I think that emotional arc is actually very resonant. And they're smart to kind of just, like, make it feel more universal by being like, yeah, if you didn't have a family, you'd want to find them. And, like, sure, they were all these... Russian czars, but we, we won't worry about that too much. Just nice orphan girl, nice grandma. Forget about the rest. When she is reunited with her grandmama at the end of the movie, I found that very affecting this time because it really, it really was just hitting me on the level of like what it would be like to suddenly have, uh, a, to, to suddenly be able to reconnect with someone you had this intimate personal history with and again as you say it was making it personal not focusing on what that means politically but saying like this girl just met her beloved grandmother again they they both thought they would never see each other again and i i I found that uh that scene to be very affecting and from the grandma's point of view that she had been like fooled by all or not even fooled but just had had to deal with all these imposters over the years and how exhausting that was for her and she's like i don't want to have to like grapple with this trauma on a daily basis anymore yeah and that feeling a little bit like we were talking about in our sleepless in seattle episode but there's that feeling of like they're getting off the elevators at the wrong time they're going to miss each other and it's like Mm -hmm. anya's right out there outside the door but the grand duchess is like i don't want to see anymore and you really connect with dimitri being like no this is her you have to meet her now like don't miss the the elevator moment which yeah that again feels like that whole sequence in paris definitely feels rom-com rom-com rom-drom territory and you know him like dimitri kidnapping the and the 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 dowager empress in her car and being like you have to meet her i just i only care about this and he you know he doesn't take the money and all that stuff is very very delicious personal drama that they've earned at that point with how they've set all the characters up okay well they um, truly my brain is like there's so many things i want to <laughs> say about this movie but maybe okay for one to one track to follow on since we're talking a little bit about the characters maybe let's transition into our sort of like voice performance side of things Mm -hmm. because i think this is like a really interesting element of animation that maybe gets slightly talked about less than other elements of animation for understandable reasons but i'm curious sam we brought you on for your animation expertise but do you have any like meg ryan connection was this like was she an actress that you sort of knew about or cared about or anything I have no Meg Ryan connection <laughs> <laughs> whatsoever. I she have is seen, Anastasia to you. Yeah, I have seen this and I have seen When Harry Met Sally and that's it. I think for someone who was a small child in the 1990s and also in the UK, I just don't think... Well, I definitely never saw any of those movies when I was a kid and I never felt any reason to go back to them either. And I like I like rom-coms, you know, I don't, I don't mind a good rom-com, but yeah, not being back to Sleepless in Seattle or... The email one, <laughs> you've got mail. <laughs> there we go. I, I got to it. But like, I know who she is, mm-hmm. and I know what she represents, and I think that is what's significant when you're looking at the way that Meg Ryan and other voice performances are used. It really starting to be used in animation around this point of time in kind of a post Robin Williams mm-hmm. world. A little bit before that, but that's that is the watershed moment. And then increasingly in a post Shrek world, they are brought in. As uh, I keep wanting to say the the term that I quote in my book, which is contracted semiotician, which doesn't mean that much 
to you guys. No, but I love it. Okay, go. Yeah, please. Yeah, so please so unpack the, it. the idea is that these actors are actors, but they are also bundles of signs. They are bundles of meaning that they have accumulated with them as they move through their career and kind of their extracurricular activities and their real life. And they are hired for these animated movies and other, this works in live action as well, Mm -hmm. but I think particularly in animated movies in the 1990s and the 2000s, they are hired for that, not just for what they're able to bring as a performer. So if you want to bring Meg Ryan into your movie, and I think in John Cusack as well, you're not just bringing them for what they can do as performers, you're bringing them because of what they represent, which in this case with Meg Ryan especially, is the romantic comedy and especially a very contemporary, very urban version of the romantic comedy and that says a lot about the kind of movie that they're trying to make because none of the other disney princesses up until this point were particularly well-known actresses outside of that and that Mm -hmm. actually goes all the way back to walt disney who uh, adriana casalotti the woman who played snow white part of the contract she signed forbade her from appearing in live action in other movies because wild Walt Disney, you know, I mean, that's incredibly really abusive from today's perspective, but the reason is that Walt Disney wanted Snow White's voice to be Snow White's voice and nothing else, because he wanted people to be able to believe in the existence of that character. And to a lesser extent, you get that with people like, um, is it Geordie Benson? Yeah, Yeah, she's Ariel. Yeah. Yeah. So to a lesser extent, you get that in this era with people like Geordie Benson and Paige O'Hara from Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast, respectively, who are kind of Broadway performers. Mm -hmm. That's where they're coming from. They're not major movie stars. They will have had their fans, but they're not bringing with them an enormous amount of baggage from, from other movies from elsewhere in their careers, which is going to affect how people relate to that character. So I think it is noteworthy when we get to Anastasia, that they're not doing that, that they're not just hiring a Broadway star with a great singing voice. And indeed, they, you know, Meg Ryan does not do her own singing mm-hmm. in this movie. It's a Broadway star is hired to sing for her. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's again, speaks to the fact that they wanted Meg Ryan for what she means, for what she represents, to give this movie a certain kind of cachet as a iteration of the romantic comedy genre. And, and that's worked because we're talking about it in a, in a Meg Ryan mm-hmm. season. We're talking about mm-hmm. it in a Meg Ryan context as a Meg Ryan movie. And yeah. when I was thinking, sorry, you can go. I've been talking for a long time. No, no, no. I was just going to say, what was the word that you said that to describe this cultural? <laughs> a contracted semiotician. Okay. Um, I feel like our Meg Ryan, we should be like Meg yes, Ryan series, yes. con- contracted semiotician. <laughs> Was I'm literally that because I can't remember who I quoted that from. Literally, <laughs> no, just on that our that describes what Seattle yeah pod. that describes what our entire series is. This entire yes, yeah. cycle of her is with our sleep in Seattle pod, which we've recorded but we haven't, I think, released at the time of of discussing this. We literally tried to have the same conversation, but the word we kept using was baggage. And what we were really looking for was semiotics, So, which is a word that comes in and out of my life, but I never feel like I can fully grasp it comfortably enough to use Uh it. 
Maybe so this she, will she's be a performer, the... but she's also a sign. We're here. Yeah. We'll, we'll have her for our talents, but we have her for what she signifies. And that is a quote from Martin Barker, who's a great British film theorist. So that's who I nicked that idea from. Um, but it's yeah, it's it's a word that I use in my book as well to describe, for example, like Robert De Niro in Shark Tale. He's mm-hmm. there because he's a great <laughs> sure. actor. But he's there because they're trying to do a gangster movie. Yeah. So how do we... And indeed, Martin Scorsese in Shark Tale, who is not a great actor. <laughs> but we we oh, have them because that. they semiotically represent the yeah. gangster genre. And that gives a certain aura to that movie. It gives it a certain sense of credibility. Which, in Shark Tale's case, the rest of the movie absolutely pisses away. <laughs> but in, in Anastasia's case, I think it is a romantic comedy. And I was thinking of... You know, I'm watching Anastasia thinking, okay, in many ways, this is a 90s Disney princess movie. It hits many of the notes that Disney hit over and over again. And in in a lot of cases, hit better, I would say, really, in this era. So what makes this movie distinct? And I was coming at it from a Don Bluth perspective, as we kind of alluded to earlier, what are Don Bluth's hallmarks? What does he bring to this movie that you might not get in a Disney Renaissance movie? But really, I should have been coming at it from a Meg Ryan perspective, because by the time you get to like the scene on the train, for example, where they're really just verbally sparring with each other, and you've got mm-hmm. Kelsey Grammer just kind of watching, going back mm-hmm. and forth, like, oh my god, what have I got myself into? It's a romantic comedy. It's a Meg Ryan movie. It's a When Harry Met Sally riff as much as it is a Disney riff. Mm-hmm. Totally. Totally. And to- to get her on board, what they actually did, because they kind of knew, I think, for a lot of the reasons you're saying, Sam, that, that she brought this larger you know weight that they could give the movie and to get her on board they took some dialogue from sleepless in seattle and they animated it as if anastasia was saying it and like brought her in and showed her that to sort of like woo her to come on to the movie and she was like really charmed by that and so came on board there's a um i just found them on youtube there is some like docu like documentary behind the scenes stuff about this movie which was like really fun to watch and i i it was unclear. They weren't showing it with the dialogue, but they were showing what at least looked like early animation for mm-hmm. Anastasia. Like she had a ferret instead of a dog, which that must have been a concept at one point. Oh. And it was just, it was really interesting to see sort of like the earlier drafts of what the world could have looked like. I like the idea of Puka being a ferret. That's kind of fun. That makes <laughs> that makes Dimitri's whole revulsion to him seem a little bit more, <laughs> a little more reasonable, and it makes Vlad uh, embracing Puka more, uh, more, more charming. But. You know, I understand. I understand the the studio being like, uh, how about a dog? (laughs) And I think a lot of times with the sort of like celebrity voice casting that became so popular in the, I think, I feel like the early 2000s, especially, I think in its worst, it could be very much like we're just using this name to sell something. Who cares if this voice really fits or Mm -hmm. like you're saying, we're sort of using Mm -hmm. Robert De Niro or whatever as these like. I don't know, in a way that can feel a little lazy. But I actually think that the the way that Meg Ryan and equally John Cusack, I actually think they are a perfect mi- mix of getting the sort of name recognition that the studio wants, but to people who I think are giving like genuinely very, very good performance, vocal performances in the movie. It doesn't feel like they are kind of lazily brought in to just, you know, be celebrities there. It feels like they really care. And like that, I think, is what was really selling all of the banter and selling the romance for me like i was really impressed by both of their vocal performances yeah i mean it sounds like they are they're they're hired there to be what they are but also to do what they do so well you know yeah right at this point they're both clearly like rom-com vets and 
And yeah, it's like I, I, I also thought of that same scene on the train where they're really arguing and I was like, This bickering is so great and who can who who can do that for you better than Meg Ryan at this point? Mm-hmm. You know, as, as you say, I, it's her whole first act of when Harry met Sally is just doing scenes like that. I love when she, she has this little line where she's like, Dimitri, do you really think I'm royal? And she says it so earnestly. And he's like, yeah. And she goes, then stop bossing me around. And it's just like a really cute little, like, spunky delivery that makes her feel, again, like, it makes her feel more modern than I think most of the Disney princesses feel. Yeah. And, you know, they talk over each other. And that's when you start, oh, right, they yeah. did this in the booth. Because think about how rare that is or next time you're watching an animated movie think about how often you see people genuinely talk over each other in conversation it's it is rare because they're recording things individually and that's a hard dynamic to do maybe you can record you know you might get if people are really having an argument you might record a long rant from each of them and just overlay it on top of each other but a conversation that flows as naturally as this where they're interrupting each other that's kind of hard to do when you're just recording everything solo in a booth with like don bluth yeah. pretend to be John Cusack yeah, opposite you, right. you know which with the best will in the world he is not John Cusack mm-hmm, yeah mm-hmm. I think uh, I think of Road Del Dorado as another movie there I know that behind the scenes they they like got the booth set up so that Kenneth Branagh and Kevin Klein could you know play off of each other and mm-hmm. a- another movie that let's just say is works best when you divorce it from any political considerations but <laughs> sure. but yeah you definitely have notable chemistry there and I think it it's paying off when these people are doing it big time Mm-hmm. And I think it, it, it all of this just speaks to what a unique challenge voice acting is. I think it is such a different style of acting. And I get mm-hmm. why some people that are good screen actors are like bad at it, right? Like you hire them for their celebrity status and they're not good. It's because if you're an actor, you're used to your tools. Like your voice is just one of many tools that you're using as an actor. And for all of a sudden, that's your only tool. Like you totally get why there are some people who make a full career out of just being voice performers because it is so specific and I was reading a little bit about Meg's experience and she said that like she was like she probably worked on this movie for a total of 10 hours over the course of three years you know and she said that a lot of her job was like you just come in and you do a line 50 times and then the director just picks their favorite and so it's such a it's not like you're like oh I'm crafting a character and I'm making all the choices to shape this character it's like you have to somehow find a consistency and also just be you know, whatever the animator is telling you to do. And at the same time, she said she was she was imagining, as I think maybe some people do, that they like draw, they like animate the film first and you are almost like lip syncing to it. And mm-hmm. she was kind of shocked to discover that the way it works is you record all the dialogue first. They animate to that. You might come in and, you know, record supplemental stuff or whatever as the story changes. But that that was like, you're in the booth and Don Bluth is like, okay, now you're like about to jump off a train. So say this line, like you're in the middle of a train and you're like leaping into the snow. Like what a fascinating acting challenge that is. Yeah. There's also a lot of, oh, 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 ah, oh, eat, huh? Efforts. Huh? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there was some, she had some quote about how Don Bluth, he's, he asked, he said, this noise you're going to make is after one hour of sleep, not 10. So sigh like you've had a nap, but not a night's sleep. <laughs> like this is the the direction she's been giving as to literally how to sigh, which is, again, just like a fascinating challenge to think about. Yeah. One of the other quotes she had, she said, when I see these movies, I want the voices to give something more than line readings. The voices have to be present. I don't know how to explain it better than that. 
And I think that's like a really good quote. Like that's totally what we're getting. And that banter feels very present. Like it all feels very alive. And I think that extends to the whole cast too. Like I really think, you know, Bernadette Peters and Angela Lansbury and Kelsey Grammer. Like there's really Hank Azaria, Christopher Lloyd. Like there's really not like a weak link here. I kind of feel like they're all like it's a really well voice cast movie. I think they do a really good job with that. Yeah. There's a weird link and that's Bartok, but he's not a weak link. (laughs) He's making a choice. He's making he's, a choice. He's making a choice. Yeah. Oh, are yeah. you not a Bartok fan? Even though I've pre-assigned you Bartok energy. No, I said he's not a weak link. I just, I just think like if if Rasputin is kind of tacked on to this movie, adding mm-hmm. something to the structure that maybe it doesn't need. Bartok is tacked on to Rasputin. I mean, he feels <laughs> talking about touchstones. He feels very much like an Iago figure. Yeah. Like yeah. we're gonna get, we'll give the villain a little flying sidekick character who will be a very sort of like contemporary comedian doing a very distinctive you know like i don't know kind of world breaking like it you know it like anachronistic like kind of violates the rules of the world but because it's like a jester character it just kind of works um i mean i like bartok and let me just say as a kid i was i was crazy for bartok (laughs) I think the world was. I feel like there's like multiple <laughs> direct video sequels that are just like bar, like bar. There was like with a, we need more bar talk. The kids are bar talk crazy. Yeah, and I, th- yeah. I mean like the way that kids will just like, just like quote an animated movie to death, you know, and just like just uh, just all of us out there in the playground going and I geeker sir, you know, they, they just <laughs> they he's he's definitely does what I assume he is intended to do, which is amuse the kids and keep them. Keep them. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he is so immaterial to the plot <laughs> that it's just strange to have him in there. But but he serves a I don't know he serves a meta a, a meta function. Yeah, they have absolutely nothing for Bartok to do <laughs> because he he has he finds out at the start that Anastasia's alive and he's got the weird kind of soul vial. That <laughs> Rasputin has, and I thought, yeah. oh, okay. So now that he knows this information, he's going to resurrect Rasputin, and that's how this goes. I kind of forgotten how it went, and then it's, oh no, Rasputin's already alive. He just finds him, and now Bartok's in the movie. Yeah, <laughs> and then he doesn't help him at all. He's very reluctant. He's trying to convince him not to do a lot of these evil deeds, but he never succeeds. So what's the point in that? And then at the end, he chooses not to fight with. Rasputin, but he doesn't help Anastasia either. He just disappears for a while. And then he comes back at the end and he's got a girlfriend. He's got a pink bat who he yeah. kisses. And that's it. What is he what's he there for? He's there for the laughs, I suppose. Yeah. And he's there because, as you said, Aladdin had Iago, so we yeah. need to have Bartok. Even yeah, Iago they- though, like Iago goes on missions for Jafar, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know? <laughs> This is like this is is something. There's there's probably a you know a dramaturgical name for this. Sort of like Statler and Waldorf and the Muppets. Like all they do is like mug to the camera and like comment on the action for the for the characters. Like yeah, it's kind of like a Greek chorus, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean that's that. what Statler and Waldorf are. There's a bit of this, yeah, because he weirdly breaks the fourth wall right at the end of the movie um, with no precedent as well. So. I think he's he's invested with as a lot of the sidekick and henchman characters are in these movie with more um kind of cartoon energy mm-hmm. than the, the leads. So you, like Iago and like Timon and Pumba and I don't know Phil and Hercules, Sebastian and Little Mermaid, sure. and actually going all the way back to Dopey in Snow White. Mm-hmm. The main characters in these relatively dramatic 
animated feature films have to behave like real people and um, we have to the, the example i always use in my lectures is if if snow white gets shot in the face <laughs> we believe that she will die yeah. whereas if daffy duck gets shot in the face we know he's going to be all right yeah. really for the movie to have stakes, you have to believe that they will die if they hypothetically got shot in the face. So we need that with someone like Anastasia, but we don't need that with Bartok. So he can break the fourth wall, for example, at the end, and he's a bit more elastic and just generally a lot more comedic and feels like he's from a slightly different movie. Um, and he is, he's from Aladdin. No, that's not true. That's not fair. Um, he's got a very different personality to Iago, a very different relationship with his um, Dark Lord Master. But... <laughs> That unit, that Rasputin Bartok unit, does feel imported from a movie like Aladdin, and as we've said, it feels not necessarily central to the movie. The whole thing would have worked, and indeed has worked in its previous incarnations, without any magic or any villains or any bat. This is the stuff I'm so excited to have you here for, Sam, because I really want to dig into like the character animation, which this is the stuff that I feel like I don't always quite have the language for, but do you, here, here's like the question or the experience I was having. And I'm curious if there's like legitimate stuff to back this up. I feel like, like a lot of this is very beautifully animated, but sometimes I felt like their facial expressions were almost less expressive than you would get in a Disney movie. Like there's something that felt almost like cheaper about it. And I'm curious if that is true or if it's just a stylistic difference. So the sense that I got from watching this, and I don't have loads to back this up apart from one clip in one of those documentaries mm-hmm. on YouTube, was that this entire thing, or at least the the main human characters, have all been rotoscoped the entire way through. Yeah. So do you know what that means from listening to Disneyversity or from yes, elsewhere? Yes, from Disney, from your wonderful <laughs> podcast, and also I've been watching all of these videos by Corridor Crew that are about sometimes animation and sometimes visual effects. Right. So now I'm very excited about rotoscoping, but please explain to our audience. But I'll tell you what, what my mom means. might listen to this, and I I don't think, with all respect, that <laughs> no, 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 she no. knows what rotoscoping is. No, of course. Um, so yes, it, if you're rotoscoping, it means you are tracing something from live action footage into your animated movie, and there's various different ways this can be applied, but most commonly it means you have filmed a person and you are literally tracing over their live action performance in order to create the animated characters and this can be used in some very cool ways and the Fleischer brothers who first came up with the process in the 1930s use it in some very cool ways and make people's bodies do crazy bizarre things and it has this uncanny effect which is intentional but it's also a lot cheaper it saves in theory although not always in practice it saves labor in the animation department because you have something in front of you you don't have to think about how you're blocking up about how you're blocking the scenes you can just trace and i don't want to devalue the work of the animators because they put a lot of effort into what they do no matter what process they're using but rotoscoping especially at this point in time is seen as a cheat it's seen as a trick it's seen Mm. as a way to do it on the cheap and i think initially just from watching the movie because you watch enough of these things and you do get a sense of oh that was rotoscoped you can tell if you watch for example snow white that the prince in every scene in snow white is rotoscoped and you can tell that he moves differently from the other characters and Mm. watching this i got that sense with basically every well definitely with uh, anastasia and dimitri i think 
when you've got characters like Vlad or Sophie, um, mm-hmm. they've got a slightly more cartoonish quality to them. Mm-hmm. Although I imagine reference footage was still used. And then I, I wouldn't be surprised if Rasputin was entirely just done mm-hmm. out of somebody's head because that character moves in all sorts of bizarre ways. Yes. Which is, one of one of the great things that he does bring to the movie. But I think definitely Anastasia, Dimitri, the Grand Duchess, they have filmed people acting out those things in full and effectively traced them. Yeah. And you do get brief shots in one of those documentaries of um, some of the reference footage that's being used. So I think I'm vindicated in yeah. my assumption. No, I was... Okay, that's really interesting because I was, I was really interested in that footage in the documentary but didn't know exactly how that translated to like what the final product looked like. So that's interesting mm-hmm. to hear that that's where that comes from. Ned, to give you a visual, it's like there's a big empty room with sort of like lines on the, like square lines on the walls. So they have like reference, you know, spatially. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like they literally had human actors acting to the vocal, like to John Cusack and Meg Ryan's vocal track. They would play that in the room. They're in full costume, like acting out every action that we see in the final movie. And I agree, Sam, it kind of seemed like they were, saying they did that with almost every like human <laughs> like character like even to the point where there there's that little scene where they're like you know in Paris and there's a little like girl that walks by and does like a flirty turn and like that was a human person that they filmed doing that action and Don Bluth was there telling her like exactly how to turn and like can you turn a little bit more this way and then they the the documentary kind of skipped over how much that may or may not have been tracing. They kind of were like, and then we turn that into the movie. Yeah, using movie magic. We're not (laughs) quite going to show you exactly how it happened. And it is... So, I mean, what what that means crucially then is that the person acting out those movements was not Meg Ryan. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. as with most animated movies of this kind, they do film the actors in the booth and use their expressions for reference, um, although not usually traced, but they'll use it for reference. Mm -hmm. Um, But that, that means that there is another performer who is responsible in part for the performance that the character Anastasia gives in this movie and indeed you could up that to three or more performers if you include the animators themselves Mm -hmm. so when we're talking about performance in animation we're always talking about a composite performance there's the voice actor but that's not where the performance begins and it's not where it ends everything we see on screen is a form of performance in animation especially character animation so for example um, Ralph Bakshi is one of the animators who's most kind of notorious for using the rotoscope. So he did the live-action Lord of the Rings movie. is probably his mm-hmm. most famous film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he often credits the rotoscope performers. So a character in the credits for one of his movies, you might find the voice actor and the rotoscope actor play side by side because they were so reliant on that footage for those films. That That feels like the ethical thing to do. It is interesting to me to think of how you know motion capture is not that it's really not that but it is kind of connected to it it is sort of a Mm -hmm. more a more um technologically involved version of the same concept and a lot of times i mean not with someone like you know tom hanks being motion capture where the whole idea is like he does the voice he does the face he does the body but there are a lot of things certainly video games for instance where you got a voice actor you got a different person providing the likeness you got a different person providing the um walking around mm-hmm. uh motion capture you got a different person providing the combat motion capture and all these and then you have animators i think it's interesting it's i don't know if we can get into the whole like uh it just always makes me think of andy circus and gollum and him not being eligible for a for a a best Mm. actor and the logic of that being like well it's not just him under there but then i think you know 
hair and makeup designers contribute to a sense of character. You know, yeah. editors editors contribute to a sense of character. So there is never like a true like pure performance thing. I don't know. I also mm-hmm. think that the rotoscope. I wonder. It'd be interesting to look back at other um, other non rotoscoped films from the same time. But I think they do allow you some cool sort of what feels like uh, motion with with depth to I mean I think of the shot in Once Upon a December where she sort of dances with like multiple suitors or just like men and like it's as if the quote-unquote camera is rotating around or following her as she spins around a room there are shots like that there's um, shots in action scenes Dimitri coming flying out of a out of the door of the steamer bedroom and kind of crashing into the wall and then sprinting down. I just feel like there is, there are shots in this that have a real human action to them, which feels to me like a, definitely like an upshot of hmm. that rotoscoping technique. Cause I feel like sometimes you get, I mean like Aladdin has action, but I think of it as being a little bit closer to a two dimensional Looney Tunes style hmm. action. When I, when I picture that, um, yeah, I'm not I'm not I I can't speak on this with authority, but I do feel like there you can get cool results from using that technique, you know. So it's interesting to hear that it is often discussed as kind of a as you say yeah. a cheat, you know. Yeah, I mean it's not I mean any any technique is just something in your toolbox yeah. to allow you to do what you do and there's always such a thing as over-relying on certain things and mm. Perhaps in, in every context, it might not be appropriate, but definitely, I mean, most of Ralph Bakshi's movies, for example, that he uses the rotoscope on are action-heavy movies, like Lord mm. of the Rings. That's going to be something difficult to animate, just straight mm. ahead by hand. Um, yeah, so I think, for example, I mean, uh, Caroline, you started this conversation by saying you thought it had a different feel to it than mm-hmm. Disney movies. And I, I don't know this for a fact. I'm sure it's something I'll learn about when I get into more depth on these movies when we reach them in our podcast. I'd be surprised if there was no rotoscoping in most of those Disney, like 1990s Disney movies. I think there'll have been definitely live action reference footage and probably a little bit of tracing involved, but it's mm-hmm. not to the noticeable extent that it is in this film. But for example, um, this is complete speculation, but the ballroom dancing sequence in Beauty and the Beast, which is actually very similar to Once Upon a December in certain mm-hmm. ways, but it's very much taken place inside a three-dimensional space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They'll definitely have had to shoot reference footage for that to get the, the dimensionality of those um, dancers. Mm-hmm. Whether yeah. it was rotoscoped or just used as reference, I'm not sure. Yeah, there's also that interesting mix here that you sometimes get in Disney movies, but I think is maybe a little clunkier here, where it's like 3D backgrounds or 3D objects even. It's like you have little kid Anastasia and her grandma who are very much just like two dimensional drawings, but the little music box they're holding almost looks like it's like a three, like a CG model or something. It's like a really interesting, I don't know if it's always successful. It feels like one of those things where like the technology shifting and maybe it's not quite there, but they're like, well, it's interesting. So let's just go all in with it. Yeah. It's interesting to look at what isn't, isn't computer generated in these movies. What have they, so for example, the vehicles, and going back to like we're looking at Oliver and Company on on our podcast, the vehicles are always CGI when they can because it's what computer is good for at this point in time is making geometrical shapes and and keeping that dimension kind of consistent in every shot. But it, it, so it's harder to do a human, but it's easy to do a, a big train, as is the case in this movie, mm-hmm. for example. Yeah. And I'm thinking, so what what 
is the actual effect of the fact that that is very palpably being done with a different technique. And I think it often, in the case of vehicles, for example, gives them a sense of power because it gives them a sense of, of weight. And it's like, oh, okay, so that, that train is a very powerful figure in that scene and you feel like it's going at a pace and that it's going to do some damage and, and yeah. that this is a tense situation. And I mean, we looked at... One of the first, in fact, the first Disney movie where they used any kind of computer effects was The Black Cauldron. And The Black Cauldron itself, in many of the shots, is computer generated, which gives it this otherworldly, I guess, literally extra dimensional um, vibe to it, it, where you feel like it exists in a different world to the rest of these characters. So I don't know if. I was thinking, why the hell have they done it on, for example, the music box mm-hmm. and the, the, the relic thing that. Rasputin has why are these small objects they could have been animated by hand and I think part of it is that they're quite complex designs that they wanted to keep consistent in every shot but it also on like a textual level it draws your attention to those objects in those scenes so when the music box becomes a very crucial part of the way in which um, Anastasia and her grandmother connect towards the end of the movie our eyes are drawn to it in every scene, which I guess highlights its significance for the characters and to the story. And that might be a side effect, mm-hmm. but it is an effect, I think. Yeah. yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought even to articulate that beyond what it was technically, but you're right that it will just add to the feeling of what's happening. Yeah. The weirdest one is the big um, horse statue that attacks them <laughs> because that is yeah. a CGI, CGI body. Pegasus, yeah. And But then it has a 2D mane. Its mm-hmm. hair is, mm-hmm. is hand-drawn, so that's weird. And yeah. I guess like the Black Cauldron, it gives you this otherworldly sense and this sense of power and foreboding. But it also really made me stop and think, wait, is that the hair is hand-drawn? Yeah. The body? Yeah. What's going on there? What a choice to make. It is so interesting. I'm so used to watching now the behind-the-scenes Disney stuff, and it's all of them, you know, working on computers to make Encanto or Frozen or whatever. It was like, it felt like so much stepping back in time to watch someone with like pages literally flipping back and forth with like mm-hmm. drawing Dimitri's face. And I was like, whoa, this feels like listening to a gramophone or something. Like it just feels like an art form we don't really have anymore. It was very charming to see that. Um, I do think maybe with Dimitri in particular, I don't know if this is just like the design or the rotoscoping. I feel like there's like a weird stiffness to him and sometimes to the other characters but that actually made me appreciate the voice performances more. Like, I feel like if you watched the Anastasia and Dimitri banter, if you just, like, had it on silent, mm. on mute, I feel like their dynamic would not come across in maybe the way that, like, Belle and the Beast dynamic, I think, would maybe come across without dialogue or Aladdin and Jasmine's would. Like, mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. there's a stiffness. But then, because the voice performances are so good, like, you don't mind. Your brain kind of fills in that there's more happening than there is so like it's more important to be a good vocal performance in a movie that's like not as impeccably animated (laughs) than it is in a movie where the animation can like carry your performance i think you've got a strong example of that in the scene where they have a i think it's i think it's at the opera at the ballet right before he goes in it's when they have the like i want to tell you something scene it's just a like a it's very close up. It is to me the scene where I most noticeably was like the faces look weird, but it has all of that energy of like tell each other, tell each other how you feel and and yeah, I think in that moment it is it is acting carrying the weight and the story that led up to there and costume design and things. Mm-hmm. I mean the costumes look great. Everyone is a vision in this movie, I think from a from a just a design perspective. I think it's very successful. 
Sam, do you have favorite like a favorite character design in this movie? A character that pops out to you the most? Rasputin. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. The way that he's decomposing and falling apart. That's you know he didn't have to do that, but that gives you such a great visual conceit to work with. So you've got the bit where his head falls into his rib cage, which is just one of the <laughs> highlights of this movie for me. <laughs> or even just like just his hands falling off every so often. Or like I think when you first see him, his lips fall off and roll oh, all that the way is down. Like, his it's a great gag. Haunting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a great gag. And it is if yeah, it's that's where all of the um interesting design and animation ideas have gone to in mm-hmm. this movie. And he is he's a, a more cartoony character and that means he is more expressive and I don't know if he's the best character in the movie because a lot of it's more a lot what we've already said how a lot of what he does is quite perfunctory to the mm-hmm. actual story. But um he gives you a lot of great stuff to look at. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what, what do you guys think are some of the best, like, we've talked about how some of the animation is a bit stiff. What do you guys think are some of the best animated imagery in this film? Something that jumps to my mind is when, at the end of Once Upon a Time, Once Upon a December, when she is like, she's like kneeled and bowed to like the imaginary Tsar Nicholas in her like golden laid up gown. And... And then Dimitri interrupts and says, like, you there, what are you doing here? And she has this, like, <gasps> snap out of it gas moment when the whole, the, like, she she snaps out of her dream, which is which is visualized by the gown, like, suddenly just, like, dissolves into sparkles, which, like, drop off of her, like, pearls off of a string. I just, I, I thought that was a, a great image for me. I really love the, like, creepy dream sequence on the boat where, where Rasputin scene. has, like, convinced her she's, like at the park or at the lake with her family but she's like walking on sleepwalking on the deck of the ship and like about to jump in it's very like haunting yeah but cool yeah and adventurous i also just love the design of anastasia of anya like i think that there is something that about her that feels slightly different than the disney princess mold she's in i mean i guess you have like cinderella who's in peasant outfits for a lot of it or snow white at times but something about her peasant outfit like it's just like cool. Like it's not like, oh, it's embarrassing she's a peasant, she has to get out of it. It's like, yeah, this is like a cool little like tights and boots and a cute little hat and it's she's like practical. out with her scarf. Yeah, it's very practical and she's got the hair that is like short halfway through and then short for half of it and then all of a sudden it's just like long beautiful aerial hair sort of yeah, inexplicably. Where did, that come from? where did that come from? But I love her little short. Like at the beginning it looks like a little bob but like with a little like half up ponytail at the top. And it just feels very modern and spunky in a way that, again, as much as I love the Disney princesses, like, I don't want this to come across like I'm not also a big fan of of (laughs) Belle and Mulan and Ariel. Yes, love all the Disney princess hair. But there's something about Anastasia that feels like distinctly modern to me. And truly, we could have a whole other podcast that's me just like ranking all of her outfits because I, again, love (laughs) like every design they give her, I think is so beautiful. Well, what is your favorite outfit? Just just the first one. Probably the ballet outfit, actually. Totally agree. Slinky, the slinky navy dress, and then it's almost like her little wrap might be three D. There's some. There feels like there's some dimension happening somewhere on the dress. I can't quite tell what's happening, but it like feels. Yeah, yeah, it feels different than some of her other looks, and I think it's beautiful. She gets a lot of outfits, doesn't she? She gets a lot of outfits. Like, yeah. Belle gets, like, two in yeah. Beauty and the Beast. Well, this is why my family had multiple Anastasia dolls, because they gave her enough outfits that they could sell me. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's it. Yeah. You've hit on it there. That's the thing. Yeah, the Batman, Batman the cartoons dolls. would also have a lot of outfits for a similar reason. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, how about you, Sam? Do you, have, do you have favorite animated images of the movie? Besides Rasputin, which you've already vocalized. <laughs> I like um, the spooky green guys. I still don't. Do they have a name? I've, I've called them demons or gremlins. or. I was going to say demons, too. I also I like minions. them. Yeah. Min- minions, but then that now has different connotations right. in the world of animation. So. That's right. <laughs> this word, yeah, this, this movie is how I learned oh the God, word the minion. Because he says, come my minions, and I was like, yeah, I, I, th- does. Yeah, I thought it was millions, and then I learned that word. Anyway. Yeah, well, I was going to say, I, I like it when the giant minion destroys the bridge, but mm-hmm. now I'm thinking of Despicable Me. <laughs> a lot funnier. That's a funny but, image, Yeah, it, it actually really reminded me of... Um, the character Chernobog from Fantasia yeah. in the yeah. Uncle Mountain sequence when yeah. he rises from his kind of volcano lair in yeah. that movie and yeah when that you know the, the whole actual the train scene that is all good I think it's a great example of animated action and genuinely mm-hmm. exciting animated action uh, which was not really a thing for a long time we're only really getting up to that point on Disneyversity with things like uh, Oliver and Company and The Great Mouse Detective where you have great action scenes and I think the dawn of the computer in its use in animation plays a big part in that and that plays a big part in the train sequence as well but that climax where the, the giant green minion destroys the <laughs> bridge is great and i also really liked um rasputin's green skeleton at the end when he dies and all of his flesh his falls horrible off. convulsing hardcore. skeleton on the okay, cobblestone his like flesh melts off into yeah, into <laughs> then good he's death. a convulsing yeah. skeleton then the skeleton crumbles into dust and then the dust flows away and that's how you know you're watching a don bluth movie and not a disney movie that guy's fully it's a dead. great death i mean because rasputin had a pretty hardcore death in real life and it feels like they skip over that, but then they also give us something pretty hardcore to end his zombie life as yeah. well. Yeah, that's Something right. I read, they were like, well, one of our fun facts was, <laughs> they were like, well, in real life, Rasputin was murdered and then his body was thrown into a frozen lake. So to homage that, we had Rasputin fall into a frozen lake. I was like, maybe this is not how you want to be selling your <laughs> children's film. Well, I think facts. there was a version of this script where Rasputin... Like, the assassination of Rasputin is carried out, and then he either resurrects or somehow survives, and that's his motivation for cursing the Tsar in Mm. the movie, because in the movie, he just kind of rocks up, and he's like, hey, you, we're not friends anymore, I'm cursing you, and it feels like we need a little bit more than that to carry this this hatred that drives him throughout the whole movie, you know? And I think if he'd have been killed at the start and blamed the Tsar for it, that would have helped. I do like that idea. I do think it is a little bit that partway through, I'm kind of like, what is your motivation, dude? Like, it's it's not even that she... It's, it's like... It is a little weak to have him just be like, I really want to finish my curse on all the Romanovs because I was slighted. Ten yeah. years ago, yeah. I kind I, of assumed that finishing the curse like got him out of limbo, either brought him back to life or like fully killed him. I had the thought of that being like he has to do it to honor the like. I feel like uh, you know what's Doctor Facilia has something like that. It's like you got to mm-hmm. do this right or else you like you lose. You, you know we're gonna suck you back to hell or whatever. But yeah, but um, yeah. I mean, it's just a, it's just a you know as we've kind of said at this point like like the the fun of Rasputin is all in his energy and not in his um mm-hmm. his plotting you know i think it's a great yeah. voice performance you know from Christopher Lloyd who's mm-hmm. just you know given us that that good unhinged Christopher Lloyd that's that stuff only he can do here it does feel like the opening of this movie that's explaining Rasputin 
has the feeling of like we filmed a three hour superhero movie but we need to now we want it to be an hour and a half so just like cut all that exposition put it into a montage and like don't think about it yeah yeah the beginning is rushed it feels again talking about touchstones it reminds me of the bells of notre dame which came out of you know that the 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 opening sequence from the hunchback notre dame that had come out a year earlier but it just doesn't have i think the heft of that opening number which is such Mm -hmm. a dramatic prologue that builds in such a cool way this feels like it has a lot of those same elements but they do feel a little rushed it's like yeah you don't really know it's like they're they're fleeing the castle now suddenly they're on the lake and rasputin is like above them and he jumps down it's there's a weird progression to it it's unclear how much time has even passed because is it the so he puts the curse on them and then that same night the revolution takes place right because that, that's how it say. comes very across clear but yeah. just... done, it's not very obviously none of it's historically accurate but <laughs> just the i the I, I could handle maybe the idea that he fanned the flames that would lead to the revolution mm-hmm. he kind of kick-started the discontent but the fact that he just like cast a curse and then suddenly the red army's knocking on the door <laughs> you know yeah like Vladimir Lenin wakes up one day. He's like, "Whoa, hang on! I've I've got an idea. I've got this crazy idea. I don't know where that's come from. Let's go, but guys. I think let's, I want to take over Russia. Let's go to the palace right now. Yeah, I think they kind of do the shorthands of what we know about the f- like some of the dramatic moments of the French Revolution. I mean, it's like mm. I don't think I don't know that anybody ever actually like stormed the palace of the Tsar. They did not in this in this phase of the revolution that did not happen no well because the the czar abdicated before the actual revolution took place so nothing nothing about this is oh i mean we can't we can't get into it (laughs) right right let's not let's not let's not anyway but rasputin looks cool he sounds cool i love his i love his whole deal yeah i think that this movie okay if we're saying the rasputin stuff it's like interesting from a character design point of view but kind of is like just its own little subplot that you could take or leave Mm -hmm. i think the rest of the movie actually does a really good job of integrating the like action adventure stuff we're talking about like i agree the train sequence is so good Mm -hmm. it's so good at building character through the action too yep like when he needs something to like blow the train apart and she just like really casually hands him a stick of lit dynamite and he's like that'll work and you're like yeah these two people should date because they are very chill about handling this dynamite situation yeah and then it so it's like action adventure movie but then it's also full-blown like broadway musical and i think it integrates both of those like elements actually really well maybe better than maybe better than some of the disney movies actually which i think can a little bit feel like here's the musical time here's the action time and they can I don't know. They can feel like not cohesive. And I think Anastasia actually, it feels very fluid the way it's like we did a musical number. We're on a train for an action scene. We're back into a musical number and it all feels like one big thing. Mm. Yeah. One thing that bugs me about the Disney movies from this era, which I generally love, but something that bugs me, which you get from Aladdin onwards, is that basically the third act has no songs. Mm -hmm. And I think that's not coincidentally when Howard Ashman died, who was the lyricist who worked on... Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Aladdin, but did not get to finish Aladdin. Mm -hmm. And he was a great lyricist, but he was also a student of the structure of the Broadway musical, and he knew where the songs had to go and when they had to take place in order to keep this thing flowing. And you just abandon the music halfway through Aladdin, halfway through The Lion King, 
um, halfway through. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Little Mermaid has the weird song with the chef. <laughs> That's kind of the only True. song in the trailer for the Little Mermaid. Um, like Mulan, very much so. And it's like mm-hmm. when we hit the dramatic stuff, it's no longer time for singing. But actually, sometimes it is time for singing and we mm-hmm. need a dramatic musical number or a, or a um, heartwarming musical number to bring these things home. And we'll get bits of that in Anastasia. Yeah, in a way that feels more fully integrated. There is a moment. I totally agree. There's usually a moment in the Renaissance movies where they just fully become action movies, yeah. and I do think Anastasia has a little bit of that. Like the final battle with Rasputin, I'm always like, I don't really need this. I'm invested in whether she's ending up with Dimitri. Like, mm-hmm. I don't really need this giant Pegasus to come around and like mess things up. But I think the movie like gets through it as quickly as it can. Yeah, and you're right that they have. Perry holds the key to your heart feels like an 11 o'clock number in a way that maybe a, the Renaissance movies, like particularly Aladdin and Mulan or whatever, don't have that built into their structure. They do kind of just switch out of musical mode like earlier than you think they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Perry holds the key is not my, I think that's probably my least favorite song in the. I kind of agree. What's your movie? favorite? Um, My favorite, honestly, this time it's is is uh vlad's reprise of learn to do it oh, when they're so dancing good. it's it's, so sweet. it's such a small little moment but it's so that's like one of the best like falling in love moments in a disney movie and it's from this outside perspective and it it's a you know it's a it's an alternate reprise to the previous song and it's just yeah i just i think kelsey Grammer does a great job he's one of the only people who sings his own character in this mm-hmm. um yeah, I love that song. I mean, I, I I love them all, but that's that's probably my number one. How about how about y'all? Sam, do you have any songs that jump out my, above the others to you? Yeah, I think for me, Once Upon a December is actually mm-hmm. by some distance my favorite, mm-hmm. and that's a great sequence as well. Yes, um, which I can't help but think of Disney's Haunted Mansion, but it's all the absolutely yeah, yeah. The, the the spirits coming from the stained glass and dancing around. I think so. It puts me in mind of the Haunted Mansion, which is off to a good start. But I think that's a really <laughs> that's a pro. It's like. Yeah, well, it's it's eerie and it's also very rousing and it reaches this really big melodramatic epic place that a lot of the other ones don't quite get to, which, you know, actually it was a weird one watching it this time round because from the last time I watched Anastasia, which was while I was doing my PhD, so probably around six years ago-ish, I remember that being my favourite sequence in the movie. And I had this, what I imagined in my head from that Once Upon a December dance sequence was actually a lot cooler than what it actually is when I watched it. I was like, oh, because you've got all these dancers, which is great, but also there's a little bit of dodgy CG in there and they're quite stiff, rotoscoped, and a lot of the character models are identical in that sequence as well, which is a bit off-putting. And I think what it actually was was the song. And Mm -hmm. it's it's the, the power of that song and the... The atmosphere that that song creates, it tricked me into thinking that that's a great sequence, (laughs) when in fact it's an okay sequence with a great song. (laughs) I really love the original Learn to Do It, just the regular one, which is very much just like this really fun like patter song tradition where we're really fitting in. The um, composers of this are Lynn Ahrens and Stephen Flattery, who are just fantastic musical theater composers in general. They did Ones on This Island and Susical and Ragtime, which I think is the best musical ever made probably fair and they did anastasia and they talked about how learn to do it they wanted this contrast between a really really simple chorus that anyone could sing then like intense patter where you're like naming all of these 
Russian, you know, whatever, royals. And then I also just love Journey to the Past. Like, the big I want Anastasia ballad was definitely one. that This was like a – this is a movie that I experience more through the soundtrack. Even now, like, it's just sort of like on a Disney playlist I have. So I sort of like am even more familiar with the songs than the – animation that goes along with them sometimes but i feel like that one's just like such a classic like just a real classic like yes is it very conventional and do you know exactly what it is and is it not really moving the form forward absolutely but but within that i feel like it's just like Mm. hitting a bullseye yeah i think that's cool and once upon december are cool but then i think I mean, I like Journey to the Past, and I like what's the evil song? Oh, in, in the, the dark, dark of, of the, the night. night. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they are they rules. are pretty good. No, I think I think they're pretty good, but they're also the ones that are like one for one replications yes. of what you would find in the Disney movies. Like <laughs> there is a Journey to the Past in all the best. You know, there's there's part of your world and Belle mm-hmm. and all of that, and then mm-hmm. there is in the dark of the night, which is very similar to Be Prepared. hundred mm-hmm. um, percent. And, and actually Jim Cummins is the singing voice for Christopher Lloyd in this movie. And he's also the singing voice for Jeremy Irons in the Lion King. So it feels very Be Prepared. Um, yeah. So I think they are pretty good, but they really suffer by comparison. I do. I, I need a shout out. We need to go back to Paris Holds the Key because <laughs> it's not, it's not, it's, it's kind of a weak song. I'm a huge Bernadette Peters fan, mm-hmm. and that's kind of the closest thing she gets to a solo number because mm-hmm. she is really underutilized in this movie, which I think is a big shame. And I quite like the sequence, if not necessarily the song itself, because it's doing Agreed. this kind of impressionist mm-hmm. thing with Paris. And my kind of galaxy brain take is that you immediately go to Van Gogh, but also a lot of it's quite reminiscent of the paintings of Georges Seurat, who is the inspiration for Sunday in the Park with George starring <gasps> Bernadette Peters. So I think maybe there's a deliberate reference to her previous work there. But no, wait a minute, Sam. You can't, you can't be an animation expert who comes onto a podcast hosted by two theater former theater majors and you're the one delivering the brilliant Galaxy Brain <laughs> I'm, I'm, an, I'm, I'm a professional takes. animation nerd and an aspiring musical theater nerd. Well, I sure. think you can consider yourself a professional musical theater nerd because that was a very <laughs> good take. I think... I think Paris Holds the Key to Your Heart is like the opposite of your experience of Once Upon a December, where the song mm-hmm. maybe isn't great, but the animated sequence is, is like even better than I remember it being. Totally. There's a really cute moment. They're riding up. They're standing on top of the elevator that is riding up to the <laughs> Eiffel Tower. And like Dimitri goes to look over the side. It's really not like foregrounded at all, but he goes to look over the side. And then Anastasia like gets anxious and grabs him and pulls him back. And it's so cute. It was like such a cute little detailed moment in a movie that doesn't always have that many little moments like that yeah and i think you get actually you get that a lot in the disney movies of this era as well where because they are very standardized visually and they've they've hit a formula and they're gonna you know it's this sort of realistic but not quite version of animation which dominates that era and which can get quite dull if, if you if you watch a lot of these things the musical sequences are where that can flex the muscles a little bit mm-hmm. because we're already in a heightened world a musical by definition requires you to suspend your disbelief so we don't have to depict the world exactly as it is anymore and we can do the you know something like Paris holds the key or something like i just can't wait to be king in the lion king mm-hmm. or the muses yeah. sequences in uh, Hercules or the, the friend like me and Aladdin wouldn't get a bit crazy with it because we don't have to believe in this world anymore. We can do something more interesting. Yeah. 
Can I ask, what do you guys think of the pop song that plays over the credits at the beginning? Like I a couldn't very... make it through. <laughs> okay, I think that is probably the correct take. I love the song so much. <laughs> you probably had that same cassette tape. That uh, We had that it on CD. Okay, sure. We were, I guess, <laughs> we were a couple years ahead In of the your... future, maybe. The, yeah, the tech. I just like, as a cheesy 90s ballad, I really love that song. Ned, do you want to break the tie here? Oh, gosh. I, I don't know that I feel strongly. I, I have some nostalgia for it generally, although I find it, it was even more sort of like painfully 90s vocal. Just the the breathiness of <laughs> of the we song was like, us. it was even more, it, it was like, it felt like a, like a parody of itself. Um, <laughs> I would say I have like, at the time, I really hated it on the, because it was first, because they would do that a lot on the soundtrack. They would put their like pop songs they're like credit songs early on mm-hmm. i'd be like i don't want to hear this i want to hear the musical songs from the musical and uh, from the movie and um and but now i have some affection for it but it's also it's also a little a little goofy hmm. well i may be outvoted but i still feel like i'm correct it is a bop <laughs> <laughs> beginning um i did very briefly meet i i when we were at theater school aaron's and flaherty came to give like a little lecture at some point and i think it was mainly for grad students but i like got to sit in on it and i'm not usually a person who like goes up to people to like tell them how much their work meant to me but i was like i was it was like an out-of-body experience i just had to go up and be like anastasia like shaped my entire (laughs) childhood i think it's probably why i did theater i think it's probably why i majored in history like it was just so influential and they were they were saying that when they because they also adapted the stage show for it, and they said that the experience I had of people feeling like the movie was very influential was one they frequently saw in the audience of just like millennial women <laughs> coming to see the show and being like it meant so much to me. So yeah, it's interesting how I think that there are movies like Anastasia, which in some ways falls through the cracks as like a not Disney Disney movie, but I think in other ways, if you are the right demographic or you saw it at the right age. It can just be like as influential, if not more so, than any of the like culturally significant, you know, quote unquote culturally significant animation movies. Yeah, I was interested when you were like, oh, that was the big one for me. Like, I had all the Disney princess movies, but Anastasia was the big one. And I wonder, yeah, I'm going to need to start talking to all of my female friends to see if anyone else had that, if that was anyone else's special mm-hmm. favorite. Or, or male friends, of course. Sure, I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm totally in the bag for like Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast, and I was when I was a kid, and I am now. And it's, it's I don't, I think these things can surpass gender in a way that maybe the studios didn't sure. have faith that they could, which is why they always like alternate, we'll do a boy one and mm-hmm. a girl one. Yeah. But um, yeah, I need to start asking people whether this was the standout for them that it was for you, because that, to me, feels like a very rare opinion but if there's halls full of students yeah. speaking to the songwriters telling them that that's the case then... <laughs> yeah absolutely. no i'd be curious to know too like i do feel like there is a big nostalgia factor for this movie like i think it's one that when it was well, first went on disney plus it was like people were really excited about it um so yeah i would be curious too if other people imprinted on <laughs> this movie as strongly as way. i did yeah we were i was just really big on watching like there are so many random sort of princess-related animated movies from this era that I would watch. There was one. I don't know if you know this movie, Sam, but it was like a Snow White like pseudo-sequel, but the dwarves were girls. 
I almost feel like I made this up. Like, <laughs> I've never heard of such a thing. Personally. It was definitely some weird off-brand something that then we just would rent from Blockbuster. We didn't own the VHS, but I feel like we rented it a lot. Or the Swan Princess. Like, there were a lot of kind of like knockoff princess movies that came out in this era. Thumbelina. I think you might be thinking of Happily Ever After. Okay, which is a filmation movie from that sounds like it could be correct. It's like yeah, it's just like a lot longer. Hair. Yeah, that's the one I'm looking at there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the one I had in my head. Yeah. I, could, I knew it was some dumb title, like Happily yeah. Ever After or Mirror Mirror on the Wall or some shit like that. Once Upon yeah. a Time, whatever. Um, yeah, Filmation did a lot of those kind of knockoff Disney. They did one called like Pinocchio and the Emperor of the Night and stuff like that. It's just, it's sequels to Disney movies that are mm-hmm. basically public domain. So no one has to know that we're not Disney unless they watch a single second of the movie, <laughs> at which point it will become painfully apparent that we are not Disney. But I, Mm-hmm. I, I really think that most people, most young audience members are going to have an experience more like mine of being sort of like blithely unaware of like what the distinctions between like studios. Yeah, that's and, definitely true. I mean, yeah. there's also an era, I, you know, I definitely feel like for a long time, I didn't know the difference between a Disney movie from the 40s and a Disney movie from the 90s. They were just all animated movies to me. And then you grow that's into being true. like, oh, I can start to see the differences there. So yeah. I think that's true for me when I was a kid, especially because they would re-release those movies mm-hmm, constantly mm-hmm. as well. So yeah. maybe like, I could go and see Oliver and Company in the in the cinema if I wanted to, and I'm not thinking about like release strategies and like yeah. oh this no. oh oh, oh mum can we go and see Oliver and Company? It looks like Disney are exploiting their vast back catalogue again. <laughs> you know, it's just like no, here's the new Disney movie. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. There was a a lot of drama actually over Anastasia's release because. I think Disney was understandably kind of pissed that Fox was kind of like trying to steal their thunder. Mm -hmm. And so they like re-released, you know, they would do these re-releases regularly, but it seems pretty pointed that they re-released The Little Mermaid for the day that Anastasia was supposed to come out. And then I think Anastasia moved its release date a week and then Disney like released something else that week. And Disney kept being like, no, no, we always had this in the plan. Like, don't worry about it. But they were very much, I think, trying to sort of like bury Anastasia as much as they could. On the on the Great Mouse Detective podcast that I listened to, Sam, you referred to Don Bluth as the Disney Judas. So it seems like that was a pretty a pretty a uh, acrimonious relationship between. It definitely was. It definitely was. And I think I mean they must have been looking at him thinking, like I mean actually I say they because not many people were actually still working at Disney who were working there when Don Bluth left but there must have been a sense of you left you tried to do your own thing it worked out for a little bit but now we're back we're Disney we're the kings mm-hmm. and you're pissing about with like a troll in Central Park and the pebble and the penguin <laughs> of course you want some of that Disney movie money you're just trying to cash in on what we're doing but he wasn't the only one I mean that's what happens when you become really successful with a specific formula you start to see people trying to cash in on that formula so you had things like that weird ass snow white movie and you had <laughs> um like warner brothers quest for camelot and oh another oh sam you are now really speaking my language <laughs> let's do another quest for camelot podcast oh, or like like the prince of egypt from dreamworks and mm-hmm. stuff and then it's the, it's the same thing you see again and this is really what my book is about is that dreamworks do shrek and then oh now everyone's doing their own shrek so you can't really escape um, imitate and like imitation, sincerest form of flattery, etc. Mm-hmm. But it did seem like Disney were going hard on this, like banning advertisements for Anastasia from their TV shows and stuff like that. That's pretty. Wow. It's hardcore. Um, so maybe the specific Don Bluth related acrimony was part mm-hmm. of that. Mm. 
I mean, yeah, it is one thing to be like, you left us and then now you're copying us. Like, I do kind of get the why that would really hit. I think to me, what's so nice about Anastasia in comparison to the Disney movies is like, it just feels a little bit more grounded, a little bit more, even for all the magic and the weirdness, like it has that, it has like a real like emotional weight that certainly the best Disney movies have, but maybe again in a more like heightened fairy tale way. Like, I just think the scene of Anastasia and her grandma reuniting feels so intimate and personal and not fairy tale Like, it feels, re- like, quote-unquote realistic, whatever that means, in a way that I think is, like, really nice and, like, gives this movie a really nice, interesting tone that doesn't have to compete with the Disney movies, but maybe complements it and is mm-hmm. slightly doing its own thing a yeah. little bit more than sometimes it's given credit for. Although, actually, also worth noting that the most recent Disney movie at this point, I think, was Hercules, which mm-hmm. I think more than any of the other ones previous does have that rom-com yeah, energy to it. Right. And that, that it definitely has a modernity to it in a, in a lot of ways. It's yes. very deliberately anachronistic in the way that Disney movies hadn't really been before. But I think if we're specifically looking at Hercules and Meg's relationship, mm-hmm. like no character feels like they've walked straight out of a, a 90s rom-com into a Disney movie more than Meg does. Yeah. So maybe that was something in the water. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense if the because you really do have the like the rom com renaissance that kicks off in 1989 with When Harry Met Sally is the same year that the Disney Renaissance kicks off in with Little Mermaid in 1989 Mm -hmm. as well. So it really is like these two trends just like running parallel and then intersecting in a lot of ways. And if you look at the Phoebus and Esmeralda scenes in Hunchback Mm -hmm. of Notre Dame, they've also really got, I would say, a contemporary rom com banter type of thing Mm -hmm. going on, but. Mm But I suppose it doesn't have, I think it still is like snappy one-liners rather than this kind of actual more naturalistic. I mean, that thing you cited about what the result of them being in the booth together, I think does set this one apart. I mean, one of the reasons why Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast were seen to be so successful at the start of this Disney renaissance is that they were bringing in kind of older audiences and teen audiences and date audiences in a way that, you know, you you wouldn't take a date to go and see Oliver and Company, no matter how great the Billy Joel songs are, you know, but <laughs> but you might take it, like, the Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast, mm-hmm. I think, in so much as they are throwing back to classic Disney and they are incorporating elements of Broadway musicals, I think do have some rom-com DNA in them as well. I mean, you know, Pretty Woman is literally a Disney movie. So the the same people, you know, Eisner and Katzenberg, who are responsible for Pretty Woman and who have all of this live action, like youth market experience from their days at Paramount, are also producing Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin. So I think there's always been a thread of the romantic comedy in these 90s Disney movies, but definitely Mm -hmm. Anastasia and Hercules as well, I guess, kind of bring that to the forefront more than they had in the past, which is like maybe precipitates the real modernization of the American animated movie that would come with something like, well, Toy Story was already out, but something like Shrek, something like The Emperor's New Groove. Um, which are very distinctly modern. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel like we've got a real sense of film and animation history that we've developed over the course of this. <laughs> Besides, also discussing semiotics, which just uh, which just <laughs> thrilled me. So yeah, this is this has been a very very fun conversation so far. Yeah, and it's really fun that that Meg Ryan is like the touchstone for both of these. Through Anastasia, can become like a touchstone for both of these trends, like the rom com queen becoming the animated rom-com queen like is a very natural Mm -hmm. 
crossing the streams moment. I think, too, Anastasia, like, last thought as we're wrapping up. I mean, again, I could go <laughs> five more hours, but yeah. um, we've gone along already. I think Anastasia does a better job of being a slightly deconstructed princess movie than a lot of the, like, modern Disney movie that really wants you to know it's a deconstructed princess movie. You know, like, mm-hmm. Frozen is very much like, please pat us on the back for doing this. Yeah. And I think Anastasia just kind of does it. And it's like, yeah, she had the opportunity to be a princess. She kind of still is, but it doesn't have to define her. And it just kind of is that. And she, it doesn't need to be so, like, winky, self-aware, self-congratulatory. And I think that's, like, a nice energy that the film brings, too. I think so much of it is just about how much time do you give to that relationship. And we're talking about quite short movies. I know, like, When Harry Met Sally is probably mm-hmm. around the same runtime as Anastasia, but these animated movies have a lot more to do besides because they've got to have action. There's and no train chase else. in When Harry Met Sally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> as great as that would have been. Um, but, yeah, it's it's about how much time you give to the relationship and frozen is very overt with it's oh it's a it's a you're getting married to a man that you just met that day kind of thing but you know tangle didn't have to be so overt Mm -hmm. and that feels reasonably progressive or at least it feels realistic and it feels natural and it feels relatable in a way that little mermaid ariel just immediately seeing eric and suddenly belting out a whole power ballad about it doesn't quite <laughs> feel it, i think in anastasia we do spend a lot more time with that couple developing the relationship and that's the focus of the movie in a way that it isn't quite in the majority of those disney movies where there's so much other stuff happening mm-hmm. i think that is a perfect note to end on and it sets us up great for our i mean i can't believe we're here already but we're next episode we're at our last meg ryan one of her last big rom-coms which is you've got mail which rounds out or as Sam called it, the email, <laughs> the email one, which I think is an equally right. valid title <laughs> right, absolutely. for that movie. Um, this is her final rom-com with Nora Ephron, her final rom-com with Tom Hanks. And I think will allow us to sort of like really put a nice little button on all the themes we've been talking about. Um, but Sam, we literally couldn't have had this conversation without you. Thank you so much for coming Thank and bringing you, so much expertise. Um, where Remind our listeners where they can find you and your work and everything. Okay, so you can find Disneyversity at all good podcast providers. That's D I S N I Versity. Okay, just to be clear, <laughs> as in university, not as in Disney. Yeah. That's the that's the direction we went. It looked better on the logo, so it's Disneyversity with an I. Um, I am on Twitter at Sam Summers and then the number zero. I really need to do better with my kind of optimization here because I have to explain all of my... <laughs> oh, just wait. Every time I explain our podcast, I have to explain it's role spelled R-O-L-E as <laughs> opposed exactly, to R. Yeah. So yes, naming exact things in a way that yeah. looks good but does not sound good is yeah. a thing to keep in mind for podcasts. So our next podcast. <laughs> Sam Summers and then the number zero on Twitter. Mm-hmm. I tweet animation stuff fairly often. And I also tweet from at Disneyversity, which is on, on Twitter too. Um, and I have a ludicrously expensive book that you can buy called DreamWorks Animation, Intertextuality and Aesthetics in Shrek and Beyond, which, I mean, just kind of ask your college librarian to order it. I think that's the only way <laughs> you're realistically going <laughs> to read it um, because it will set you back at least $80 for about 300 pages. So just, <laughs> I mean, which I would love. I was going to yeah. say, after this, it feels like it's going to be some good content. So I wouldn't yeah. sell yourself short there. Um, we will link to all that stuff in our show notes too for people to easily click on and find there. I will say, in addition to Disneyversity being a great podcast, you guys run a really great Twitter feed. Like there's really, you have lots of really good like additional material on there. So don't just follow the podcast, follow the the Twitter feed as well. 
And I guess that's it. Is there anything I'm forgetting that we <laughs> do at the end of these, Ned? No, let's, yeah, I've, this has been great. I think we need to call it. Yeah, truly. Thank you so much, Sam. Thank you so much, Ned. Thank you so much, Anastasia. Roll Calling is produced and recorded by us, Caroline Sita and Ned Baker. Our theme music was created by Patrick Buddy and our logo was designed by Nick Wanserski. You can follow us on Twitter at Roll Calling or email us rollcalling at gmail.com. Again, as previously established, that's roll spelled R-O-L-E. Next week, we'll be back with You've Got Mail. Until then. Wow, I tell you what, wow. So long, everybody. (laughs) Brilliant. Perfecto. I mean, I was kind of going Dr. Nick Riviera there, but that's kind of what he was doing as well. Yeah, he used the touch tech. That's right. (laughs) 